This is What's Growing On, a show where we dig up the latest dirt on Ontario horticulture production, helping producers navigate best management practices and taste the sweet success of a quality crop. My name is Christy Greg McGuffin. And I'm Cassie Russell. Join us while we talk with specialists in the field of fruit, vegetables, and specialty crops to find out what's really growing on. Welcome to our second episode of What's Growing On. I'm really excited about our three guests today. First, we'll be chatting with Omafra Entomologist for Horticulture, Hannah Frazier, and Berry Crop Specialist, Erica Pate, on the invasive insect spotted wing Drosophila, and how berry and tender fruit growers are dealing with this difficult pest. After that, we'll be hearing from vegetable crop specialist Dennis Van Dyke, who's going to give us an overview of weed control and carrots, and discuss some existing and emerging technologies for getting rid of those pesky weeds. But first, let's cover some general crop updates for Ontario as of Friday, June 12, 2020. Why don't you start us off with vegetables today, Cassie? Sure thing. Uh, Well, I think first we need to acknowledge that crazy storm that blew through Ontario on Wednesday evening. Uh, Lots of strong winds and precipitation and even hail reported in the Windsor-Essex region. So make sure, if you haven't already, check on your crops, uh, especially recently seeded or transplanted vegetables, to survey any damage. And don't hesitate to reach out to any of the OMAFRA specialists if you have questions or want to send us some photos of what you're seeing in the field. All right, so on to some vegetable updates. In brassica crops, we have flea beetles, cutworms, and imported cabbage worm that are all active, and cabbage maggot has reached its degree day threshold in all regions except for Sudbury. For celery, aster leafhopper and tarnished plant bugs are active, and thresholds have been reached in all regions. With garlic, the number of trapped adult leek moths has been down over the past two weeks, and it's likely that the second flight will be occurring shortly. Make sure to target the next wave of leek moth larvae a week after the next peak of adults have been trapped. And for scapes, they are starting to emerge across Ontario, specifically in music and other hardneck cultivars. Cutworm pressure has been high in leafy greens, and leaf miners are also active and causing damage that looks similar to frost. For onions, many direct-seeded onions have reached the third leaf stage, and some are even a little further along. Onion maggots and cutworms also have been active. For asparagus, harvest is wrapping up for this year's crop. Fluctuating temperatures have encouraged stemphilium purple spot in many areas, and some fields have had high incidence. Asparagus should be scouted to determine when spray programs should begin for stemphilium and for rust. Cucumber beetle continues to cause direct damage in cucurbit crops in many areas, and vine crops should be scouted. Thresholds are low for this pest because they carry the causative agent for bacterial wilt, of which cucumbers and melons are most susceptible. If there are beetle emergences in your area, be alert for these during their second emergence later this summer, and consider planting trap plants or indicator plants. Carrots are almost all seeded now, and most have started to emerge. Hopefully those emerged carrots survived the storm and wind Wednesday night, and carrot weevil are active right now and laying eggs, so scout on the field borders and determine if the numbers are at thresholds. Potatoes have been planted in many fields and are starting to emerge and fill in the rows. 
Overwintering Colorado potato beetles are out and laying eggs, so keep an eye out for egg masses under the leaves and hatching larvae to determine how your seed or in-furrow insecticide has been holding up. Tomato and pepper transplants are coming along well, although some plants were suffering from some heat stress and dry conditions prior to the storm. In peppers and tomatoes, early season insect pressure has been low overall, but we know that cutworm larvae has been active in other crops, so be sure to maintain your scouting practices. Now is also the time that neighbors might be spraying herbicides on their field crops, so make sure you're having that chat with your neighbors if you have tomatoes growing nearby so that you don't suffer from damaging herbicide drift. Sweet potato planting is currently underway here in Ontario. New growers are reminded that many herbicides registered on sweet potatoes, as well as insecticides registered for white grubs, must be applied early in the season, either pre-plant incorporated or shortly after planting. A full list of pest control products and herbicides currently registered on sweet potatoes in Ontario is available in OMAFRA publications 838 and 75B. And lastly, for any hop growers out there, downy mildew has been under control in yards with regular spray programs, but recent rain will encourage development of this disease. Significant basal growth remaining at the base of plants after training can encourage development of the disease, particularly around irrigation lines. Minimal flea beetle damage not requiring control has been reported in some areas, and potato leafhopper has also been observed in southern yards where surrounding hayfields have been cut. Alright, well that's it for me. For more detailed information and other vegetable-specific updates, check out the weekly vegetable crop report that's released each Thursday on our vegetable blog, onvegetables.com. Okay, Christy, let's move on to fruit. So are you hearing of any impacts from the storm on Wednesday? Yeah, thanks, Cassie. So a lot of areas finally got some much-needed rain with that storm, but it seems like there's still some areas that just didn't get as much as they had hoped. Um, Unfortunately, though, with that rain came some pretty strong winds and even hail in some regions. So you'd already mentioned, Cassie, but don't hesitate to reach out to your MAFRA specialist if you're seeing crop damage or if you have any concerns. The one thing with these storms is that there can really be a big risk of insect and disease movement, both coming in over the lakes um, as well as moving kind of between fields within a region. So for instance, uh, we typically see a flush of potato leaf hopper following the first large storms of the season they're, as they're kind of blown across the lakes from the south. Um, or another example is the fire blight bacteria, Erwinia amliavora. It can move really well on wind currents, so it can spread between apple and pear orchards in a region during storm events like what we just had this week. So it's really important to just keep up a regular monitoring program um, just to stay ahead of any issues that, that may have come from this storm or, uh, or any storms we might see this season. In terms of crops, uh, strawberry harvest is underway for day neutrals and early June bearing. Um, blueberries aren't far behind. They've reached petal fall in most areas. And raspberries have started to bloom this week as well. So uh, harvest for those is anticipated to be about in three weeks time or so. Birds have begun feeding on developing hascap berries, and so bird netting and and other protective devices are being put in place as birds can really rapidly remove hascaps from unprotected fields. Uh, Spotted wing drosophila traps have also gone up now across the province, um, but so far there have been no adults that have been detected. 
Grapes are growing well, though the hot, humid weather has been optimal for fungal diseases such as Phomopsis, downy mildew. Uh, there's been some suspect black rot and powdery mildew. Scale and mealy bugs are moving back down to the grapevine trunks, and stippling leafhoppers are now present in low numbers. There's also been some control products going on for phylloxera and Erwinium uh, mite galls uh, that have been found in, in some vineyards. In terms of apples, fruit are sizing really nicely. Uh, fruit lip thinning programs have begun, and the weather conditions so far have been pretty good for these thinning products since they are more effective in warm temperatures. Um, there is some concern, though, in some areas that have really had a, a lower rainfall this season, um, since this, this is kind of the key timing for fruit development to obtain good size. So, so time will tell um, as the fruit begins to mature, but those growers who have irrigation, they will be irrigating to try and supplement this. Uh, fire blight symptoms have started to show up in some orchards over the last few weeks. We's, we really had some high to extreme infection risk potential. Um, and, and with this storm that we had this past week, there is the risk of trauma blight that's been, that, that may develop. Um, those growers that have had a history of fire blight, though, they, they've followed up uh, following that storm with a preventative spray just to, uh, to keep fire blight at bay in their orchard. Uh, powdery mildew and frog eye leaf spot, also known as black rot, they've really taken off in some susceptible varieties across the province. Um, and also seeing some codling moth flight. So, uh, so control for this pest will be applied shortly based on degree day models. The severe weather also continues to be a high risk for fire blight in pears. Uh, we're also seeing some plum curculio activity in orchards where there's been a history of damage. And in terms of stone fruit, uh, peach leaf curl damage is sporadic in peach and nectarine blocks. With shuckfall occurring, apricot, peach, and nectarines are susceptible to infection by powdery mildew, bacterial spot, and peach scab. And there have been some bacterial spot lesions observed in some peach and nectarine blocks. Fruitlets damaged by the hail in the Niagara region that happened last week, they've scarred over now and so they're not susceptible to pathogen infection and most of these fruits are going to either drop naturally or be removed during fruitlet thinning. But uh, the tart cherry growers that did sustain, sustain some significant crop loss with that hail, um, they still need to protect their trees from things like cherry leaf spot and powdery mildew, just really to ensure uh, and maintain good tree health for the rest of the year. For more detailed information on these and other fruit and vegetable crops, check out our weekly crop updates at onvegetables.com and onfruit.ca. On today's fruit segment, I'm joined with Erica Pate, Omafra's fruit crop specialist for berries, and Hannah Frazier, entomologist for horticulture crops, to talk about a little pest that's causing big problems in Ontario. So Hannah and Erica, welcome, and thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Christy. So uh, so I was actually thinking about the two of you the other day, and um, my, my regular, one of the most important routines of my day is to put the girls to bed sit on the couch and go through my social media, the gossip columns, right? All the really important stuff, right? And so in one of these threads, um, someone discovered that if they put their fruit in salt water, 
they discovered all of these creepy crawlies. I don't know what the term was that they used, but basically it was, you know, the most disgusting thing in the world came out of these fruit. And, um, and the, it just snowballed through that thread of everybody just finding it so disgusting. But nobody asked in that entire time, nobody asked what it was, right? What it is that they're actually seeing and what this problem is. So, um, so yeah, so I'm happy to, to be talking to you guys. Um, and kind of getting the, you know, the grower perspective in terms of how this is impacting them, what, uh, what sort of management they're doing and, uh, and what exactly this is. So, so Hannah, I'm going to start off with you. Um, and just wondering kind of, let's just start from the basics first of all. And what is this creepy crawly thing that I'm talking about? Yeah, Christy, it sounds to me like what people are talking about is spotted wing drosophila or SWD for short. Sometimes we refer to it as spotted wing, regardless of what we call it. It is an invasive fruit pest from Asia that's recently undergone a range expansion to other fruit producing regions around the globe. So this isn't necessarily a pest that's always been here? No, it's not. Again, it's from it's a pest from Asia. And uh, it was first recorded outside of that region in Hawaii in 1980, I believe. Um, it At the time it was reported, it didn't really hit, like, it didn't really register on anybody's radar. Like, they weren't thinking about it as, oh, this could potentially be a fruit pest in other jurisdictions. It was just kind of a note, this thing has now been found in Hawaii. That's really, really unfortunate because, of course, no action was taken, no awareness um, about this uh, potential um, invasive pest. And as we know, there's been a lot of invasive pests over the years that, um, that growers have had to learn how to deal with. So um, after it showed up in Hawaii, um, there was kind of radio silence on it until it started showing up simultaneously in California and Europe in 2008. And then since 2008, it spread rapidly throughout all the temperate regions of North America and Europe. So when did spotted wings show up in Ontario? Yeah, we first heard about SWD in 2009 when there were reports of injury coming out of California. And it was the same year that it was also identified in British Columbia, kind of late in the year. The Canadian Food Inspection Agency conducted surveys in the other provinces in 2010 because they wanted to find out what the potential distribution, you know, is this past found in other other provinces. Um, so, of course, there were some traps that were um, put up in Ontario. Um, we did manage some of them. They did manage most of them. Um, and it was kind of late that year. I think it was November that we learned that there was a positive find of SWD in Ontario. And it was in an urban environment uh, kind of in association with um, a composting area. So we weren't really sure, you know, does that mean that it's actually present in Ontario or was it just a case that maybe there was some infested fruit from another jurisdiction that somebody threw it in their compost and it happened to have SWD in it? We, we really did not know. Um, of course, fresh fruit is is a major way that a pest like spotted wing drosophila is um, is spread around, and we'll get to that probably later on in this um, this interview. So, um, in two thousand and eleven, we decided to do uh, broader surveys in Ontario in fruit producing regions, and we enlisted the help of lots of other people. Um, and it showed up in around mid August, and we didn't really have any reports of injured fruit during that year. So in 2012, we again increased our efforts. We had sites all over uh, southern Ontario. We actually had some uh, sites up in Temiskaming. And um, in 2012, SWD showed up at the end of June. By the end of the summer, we had found it everywhere. 
And this was also the first year that we confirmed injury in berry crops. And of course, we've since learned that SWD is a really serious pest and it is here to stay. So, okay, so you mentioned that berry crops are impacted. Are there specific crops for that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, SWD is a, is a pest of soft skin fruit. So berries, including strawberry, raspberry, blueberry, as well as some other small fruit, including cherries, are at high risk if SWD is present near harvest. Other stone fruit are less susceptible because we typically harvest them when they're, they're kind of firm. Um, but SWD is a real opportunist in terms of what it will attack. Okay. What do you mean by an opportunist? <laughs> yeah. I know it, it is an opportunist. Um, it's a it's a pest that has a really wide range of hosts, and that includes many berry producing wild hosts as well. So populations of SWD can build up on these hosts in unmanaged areas, like you know in let's say woodlots surrounding uh, your farm, and they they will move between these wild hosts and the crops through the season. So they do move around quite a lot, and for this reason, we refer to SWD as a landscape level pest. And it's this aspect of its biology that makes it really challenging to manage. But, okay, but wait, we're, so we're talking about Drosophila here, right? Like a fruit fly or a vinegar fly. And so, I don't know, the ones that I think of when I think of a fruit fly are, you know, the ones that are flying around my fruit basket when I let my fruit go overripe or, you know, those that we see flying around compost bins. So what makes spotted wing Drosophila any different? Yeah. Well, um, it is a vinegar fly, but related vinegar flies lay their egg in fruit and vegetables that are past peak. So in other words, plant uh, material that's starting to break down and decay. Um, overripe or damaged fruits and vegetables often have breaks in their skin where the females can lay their eggs directly on the exposed pulp. But SWDs evolved to exploit a resource that other vinegar flies can't. In other words, healthy, sound fruit that's just beginning to ripen. So being in the fruit before other vinegar flies gives SWD a competitive advantage over other species. The reason they're able to do this is that the females have this large serrated ovipositor that helps them literally saw through the egg, or <laughs> saw through the skin of ripening fruit, and that allows them to deposit their eggs inside, sort of in a protected space underneath the, the skin of the fruit. And other vinegar flies just can't do that. Wow. So, okay. So the eggs actually are inside the fruit and that happens, you said, just before harvest. So that is not a good combination. Yeah, no, definitely not. I mean, one of the things with having eggs under the skin um, is that it means that those eggs are protected. So it's really, really difficult to control after the fact. So basically the larvae, when they hatch out, they feed inside the fruit and they cause it to break down really quickly. And this reduces the quality of the fruit and it essentially renders it unmarketable. And although there's signs of infestation that an experienced person can pick up when, um, like when they're, when the fruit's being harvested, um, some fruit with SWD eggs or small larvae, they can end up in the basket. So for example, if I'm out there and I know what SWD looks like and sort of the signs of infestation, I can pick a raspberry um, that looks beautiful. And if I look very carefully in the cup and I start to see a little bit of liquid developing, if I peel that fruit apart, I can actually find larvae inside. But most people don't know to look, look for that. And so these things can be, um, can be um, harvested by mistake. And there's a really low tolerance for insects and fruit. And that's why it's important to manage SWD. So the females don't have that opportunity to lay their eggs in the first place. And of course, growers have to use a whole bunch of different strategies to manage this pest effectively. And in some years, when the pest pressure is really high, it's tough to keep up. So does spotted wing then show up at the same time every year? No, it doesn't. 
the first few years after SWD was found in Ontario, we noticed that it seemed to be showing up earlier and earlier. And this is a trend that's been observed in other fruit producing regions, especially in the Great Lakes region. Every year is different. So it's, it's very important to monitor for this pest. Some years it shows up in early June, but it can be later than that. In bumper years for SWD, when the numbers surge earlier in the season, it puts more crops at risk than in years where populations start their exponential surge growth later on. Well, okay. And then is there any way to predict how a given year is going to shape up? Yeah, (laughs) we get that a lot, um, both for SWD and for other insect pests. So um, in the case of SWD, so there's been some really interesting research coming out of Michigan State University. They have access to this really great data set, um, sort of consistent trapping with the same types of traps and lures every year that dates back to when SWD was first found in that region. And that data sets allowed them to really, really look at the factors that drive that variability every year um, in the populations of of SWD. And what they found is that the environmental conditions can be used in northern temperate regions like ours to provide risk warnings as a component of the IPM uh, programs. And really what they're they're finding is that they're able to predict fly capture um, by looking at the overwintering and the spring conditions and to a lesser extent the, the pressure and the peak activity in the previous season. Winter is a really important bottleneck for SWD. And even though this pest does have a winter morph or a form that's really better adapted to surviving adverse conditions such as cold temperatures and desiccation, less than about 1% of the SWD typically overwinter. So spring activity always begins or almost always begins with a pretty low abundance of adult flies. They're very difficult to find early in the season, and we certainly have tried to do so. Um, what happens is that you get this uh, great initial growth and subsequent peak activity in the season in years where you've had uh, winter and spring conditions that are pretty warm. So the fewer winter days with temperatures below zero degrees C and the more winter and spring days above 10 degrees C result in earlier activity and in higher population growth potential. And as that season approaches, the spring conditions also need to be considered as cold springs delay population growth. Well, okay, so then why would that matter? Yeah, well, being able to provide a general estimate of future fly activity can help us to evaluate that seasonal level of risk. If it's been a really mild winter, so such as one we've just had, conditions are set in place for a potentially very risky year. So taken together, the winter and spring conditions have utility in predicting that severity before fruit becomes susceptible during the late spring and early summer. And this can be really useful intel for growers who produce crops that ripen when SWD transitions from that low overwintering activity to that exponential growth when the numbers really surge. And so crops like June strawberries, cherries, and summer raspberries can be really at risk during these years. Hmm. Well, okay. So that's a lot to take in. (laughs) So Erica, I'm going to kind of pull you into this conversation here. Um, So how do you build an IPM program for a pest like spotted wing drosophila? You're right, Chrissy. That's a lot to take in. And there's a lot to think about for a spotted wing IPM program. And one of the important things we tell growers is that when there's ripe fruit present and spotted wing is active, it is time to spray. So that's where monitoring comes in. Monitoring that spotted wing population in your area is a big aspect of managing spotted wing effectively. Um, So there are a couple options for growers to monitor. Uh, Although we don't have really sensitive and selective tools like pheromones for other insects, 
There are baits available that are more effective than homemade sugar yeast bait traps or the apple cider vinegar that we used to use when we were monitoring. Um, and so these lures can either be used with sticky cards or liquid traps to track spotted wing presence and then also to monitor that population and look for signs of it starting to surge. The sticky cards and liquid traps are used to monitor for adults, but growers can also do a plastic baggie test or saltwater test, which can detect any larvae in the fruit. And so if they do find larvae uh, with those tests, it's time to ramp up management if they haven't already. We're actually working on a couple projects to develop quick and practical monitoring tools for growers to use themselves or for consultants, including using these sticky cards paired with lures that I mentioned, and then another project using a molecular test to detect and quantify the number of spotted wing in the liquid traps. Nice. Okay. Well, now I'm, I guess I'm stuck on this fruit fly thing that <laughs> they're pretty small. So you're talking about identifying them in a trap. How do you know what you're looking at? Yeah, that's a good question, Christy, and it can take a bit of practice. Um, so spotted wing is small. They're only about two millimeters long, um, and there's a lot of lookalikes out there. Um, only the males have spots on their wings, so that's how we identify the males, uh, one on each wing near the tip. But once you learn to recognize the males, they are relatively easy to spot on cards or in liquid. Um, and we find it helpful to confirm any suspects with a hand lens or even using your cell phone to help magnify the flies and confirm what you're looking at. The females, on the other hand, can be a bit trickier. They are identified by their ovipositor, and the ovipositor is easy to find once you know what you're looking at, which takes magnification and a bit of practice. So without a microscope, um, if you're looking at liquid traps or sticky cards, you're most likely only going to identify those males. Hmm, Okay. Well, okay, I'm, I'm a grower, um, and so I've started to find SWD in my trap. So now what do I do? Right, so if spotting is active and there is ripe fruit present, it's time to spray. And then from there, growers will have to manage for the rest of the season. Um, and that's because females can lay hundreds of eggs during their lifetime, and there are multiple overlapping generations. So once they've emerged in the spring, the population will continue to increase, and they're active for the rest of the season. And then on top of that, spotted wing also has a wide host range that Hannah mentioned, which means that they can fly in from hosts throughout the season into your field. And that combined with, you know, the, the population increasing throughout the season means that growers have to continue to manage until their harvest is over. Uh, so there are a number of insecticides registered for spotted wing control or suppression. And so once growers start to spray, they need to apply an insecticide weekly, and then they need to apply after a rain. For those less effective products, they need to be applied more often. Uh, they need to keep weather conditions in mind when choosing their products, and then also keep pesticide resistance in mind. Uh, repeated use of any insecticide group can result in its loss as a management tool because of resistance developing. So growers should use a variety of different insecticides and, and rotate between these groups. Each of these products has a specific reapplication interval and a maximum number of applications per season that growers are probably familiar with. So I recommend to take a look at this now before we start our season to see how many applications you have to get you through the season. Yeah, yeah, really important. So, okay, well then apart from insecticides, are there other IPM practices that could be implemented? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up because that's one of the most important things to know about spotted wing is that insecticides are only part of the control strategy. Uh, the goal with insecticides is to kill spotted wing before the female lays eggs in the crop. 
Um, so there's research that shows that less than 10% of the population at any one time is adults, and the rest are eggs, larvae, or pupae that are protected in the fruit. And that's why cultural practices are so important. Um, so there are a few different cultural practices that growers can use throughout the season. Uh, to begin with, uh, good spray coverage, which kind of goes in hand with those insecticides, is really important. Um, insecticides are controlling those adults, either by direct contact or when they land on treated surfaces um, before the female lays the eggs in the fruit. So it's important to spray where adults are and when they're active. So opening up the canopy will help improve coverage and help to reach those adults. And then it's also important to calibrate your sprayer, use a high water volume, not to cut rates, and uh, to slow down and not go too fast. Another benefit of managing the canopy is that it reduces the conditions adults prefer. Adult spotting prefer cool, moist, and shaded environments. So managing the environment to make it less favorable by increasing sunlight and reducing humidity can help with management as well. Hmm, that, that makes sense. So um, does the frequency of harvest, does that have any sort of impact? I would encourage everybody to pick regularly and often because that can make a big difference. So plan to pick every other day if possible, and then also remove any unmarkable fruit from the field as um, the pickers go. And this will prevent the buildup of any ripe or overripe fruit in the field. Make sure to destroy any of that unmarkable fruit that you remove as well. For June and strawberry growers in particular, they should renovate as soon as possible to dry up the remaining fruit uh, and make it less attractive to spot wing. Hmm, interesting. Well, Okay, so you both, uh, both you and Hannah had mentioned um, wild hosts. So is there anything that a grower can do to reduce the, the pressure that's coming from those unmanaged areas around the field? Yes, that's a, another practice growers can do. So it may not be practical to manage all wild hosts, especially since they can also contain beneficial species. But it can help to manage uh, field edges to keep them tidy and free from wild hosts. And that can include honeysuckle or wild brambles, pokeweed, mulberry, elderberry, um, and there's a, a lot of others. Um, so it might not be possible to remove wild hosts, but uh, try and cut them down below the fruiting zone, but make sure that you're not applying insecticides to non-crop areas. Right. And okay, well then what about um, infested fruit that gets harvested? Is there anything that can be done at that point? Yeah, so post-harvest management is another key practice for growers. Uh, they should cool fruit down as soon as possible after harvest and then keep it cool. And this will slow or stop the development of larvae or eggs in the fruit. And then customers should also be encouraged to follow this. Well, okay, that sounds like a lot of work for a grower to, to manage one pest. Yes, it is. Uh, the key to spot wing management is for growers to use as many of these practices that I just went over. So although it is challenging, uh, it is manageable. So growers need to take a season-long approach and use all those um, practices that I just went through. So regular insecticides, good coverage, wild host management, regular harvest, sanitation, and post-harvest cooling. And then early detection and management are key to limiting that economic damage. So this is a lot, but there's also a lot of research going on on alternative management tools. So maybe you should have Hannah and I again and we can talk about those ones. I like it. You're, uh, you're making my job pretty easy here. <laughs> so, um, so now that we're nearing harvest and some of the berry crops, um, what's happening in terms of SWD activity in Ontario? Well, we just started putting our traps out last week, so we're just starting to get our regular counts. However, New York has also reported that they've started their monitoring program and they've found low numbers at a few cherry sites 
Mm. Um, we'll post our results on our blog or um, in the Barry Bulletin, so make sure to check that out. And I, I encourage everybody to check that out regularly to see what's going on in their area or to monitor themselves. And then the important thing with all of this is just to remember that once spotted wing is active that's and ripe fruit is present, that's when it's time to start spraying. Nice. So good advice. So, um, so thanks to you both for joining me today. And, uh, and as I said, talking about kind of this, this issue that's not just uh, in kind of the, the agricultural conversation, but now apparently in social media world too. So it's, uh, it's nice to kind of hear the, um, you know, what's going on from how the growers are dealing with it and, and your advice that you have for them. So I really appreciate you both joining me today. So thanks to you both. Thanks, Christy. Thanks for having us. I was just speaking with Hannah Frazier, entomologist for horticulture crops, and Erica Pate, fruit crop specialist for berries, both with Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food, and Rural Affairs. For today's vegetable segment, I'm here with Dennis Van Dyke, vegetable specialist covering root vegetables such as carrots, potatoes, and rutabaga. Thanks so much for joining me today, Dennis. Thanks for having me, Cassie. Uh, so on, in Ontario, there's approximately 9,000 acres of carrots grown throughout the province. And as most growers have just finished seeding their crop, now's a great time to chat about managing early season weeds. So Dennis, I guess a great place to start here is why are carrots so susceptible to weed competition in the first place? Well, carrots are notoriously slow to uh, germinate and to establish. They often need to be babied a little bit, you know, with good soil preparation, good soil moisture. Um, you often have to be irrigated before and after seeding, especially in these later seeded carrots, you know, when we're getting into kind of mid-June. Um, when they do germinate, they're even slow to kind of grow and establish early, so weeds often get ahead of them. And that's a real big problem in carrots especially because they're susceptible to pretty significant yield losses from weed competition. Um, that old research from the University of Guelph by Clarence Swanton found that uh, critical weed feed period is, you know, up to the fourth leaf stage for later seeded carriage, but the twelfth leaf stage for early seeded. So, you know, it's a long time to keep weeds out of the crop, especially with a pretty fairly limited uh, herbicide toolbox. Right. And so what are some of the typical weeds Ontario carrot growers have to deal with? Well, we usually get the usual weed pressure across Ontario, you know, your lamb's quarters, purslane, velvet leaf, you know, ragweed, fleabane, those kind of things. But we also have some problem weeds in carrots specifically, uh, like yellow nut sedge is a perennial problem because there's really not very many herbicides available to manage it in carrots. You know, once the nut sedge germinates in the season, it's next to impossible to effectively control it. You know, higher rates of loras will kind of set it back, but because it's growing from that nut, it just kind of keeps coming. So it's really a weed that has to be managed, you know, in the rotation outside of when carrots are grown. Another problem weed that's popped up recently across a number of vegetable crops is group one resistant crabgrass in southwestern Ontario. Uh, it's an interesting problem that's currently being researched on how to better manage it in a vegetable rotation. But really the main weed in much of our carrot growing areas is, is pigweed species. So... The real issue uh, is triazine-resistant pigweeds. So the triazines are your group 5, 6, and 7 herbicides. In carrots specifically, group 7 herbicides like Lorox uh, resistance is a real main concern. But we also have populations resistant to group 7 and group 5. So your group 5s are your Gessigard and, and Sencor herbicides. Okay. Uh, so you've mentioned a few of these options already. But could you talk a bit more in detail about the herbicides that are available to carrot growers? 
Yeah, for sure. I'd be, I'd be happy to get into a little bit. Um, so whether on muck or mineral soil, the cornerstone of any carrot herbicide program is, is got to be Lorox. Lorox is still the only pro-submergent product that controls emerged broadleaf weeds. So it's really the critical piece of any herbicide program. Um, our toolbox is a little different depending on if we're on mineral or muck soils with carrots. So on a mineral soil, you basically have three kind of group options. So you have group three products. Uh, one would be Trifluralin. So that's your trade name, Treflan, Rival, or Bonanza. Uh, and that's got to be a pre-plant incorporate. So basically you spray, you work it in, and then you make your beds and seed. Uh, Prowl H2O is also in that group three uh, group. And that one is just your irregular pre-emergence application. That one has a little bit of a longer PHI. It's about a 90 days. So if you're trying to turn around a crop and do some uh, earlier seedings, that might not work for you. Uh, but group fives, you got Guard. Registered on mineral, uh, you're really better off using the lower rates. It can get a little bit hot if you're using the higher uh, muck rates for sure. And then you have group 15, dual 2 magnum as a pre-application as well. Um, in terms of pre-emergence, if you go to muck soils, it's very similar. The only difference is, I guess, is that from muck soils, you don't have the trifluralin as a group 3. You basically only have prowl, guessagard, and dual. But then on muck soils, you also have a, a group 6 partner registered. It's, it's mostly a stale seedbed burn down. So you'd apply it sort of right before emergence, a couple days beforehand, uh, to get rid of any emerged weeds that have come up. Uh, Post-emergence, the, the products are very similar. Uh, you, you know, have Lorax I've mentioned before, the cornerstone. Uh, you also have due to magnum you can apply sort of between the three to six leaf stage, uh, which has got some pre-emerge activity. Uh, and then you have AIM registered, which is uh, sort of a non-selective herbicide. You can spray, it has to be in between the rows. In terms of grasses, we have three products, Post, Select, and Venture, uh, all group ones to, to spray off any, you know, wind abatement crops or any grasses. And we also have Sencor registered. It's a group five. Um, one thing about that label, it requires a pre-application of Lorox, which is a little bit of a waste. You're, you're better off sort of having that Lorox available to use Post. Uh, and with Sencor, you also kind of run into issues with different tolerances for different varieties and rotational crop problems, uh, especially with onions, you can see some stunting the next year. So that's uh, that's our current herbicide situation when it comes to carrots. I guess uh, a couple pre-emergent options, but a real reliance on Lorox for post-emergence. So I guess that's why we're hearing and growers are seeing so much group five and group seven resistant weed issues pop up in these crops. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I would say that you know another contributing factor to that is that a lot of carrot fields have or still do have potatoes in the rotation, which is another crop which is heavily reliant on Sencor, Lorox, you know, group five and group seven herbicides for weed control. So it's it's kind of difficult also to get a good herbicide rotation out of those products and a real heavy selection pressure on those type of products. And what could a grower do if they know or suspect they have resistant weed issues in their crops? Well, first thing I would say is to confirm whether or not your weed escapes are due to resistance. I, th I think it's important to know the difference between, you know, something wrong with the application or if it's resistance, because it really drastically changes your management strategy after that. You know, if you have resistant weeds in your field, it should be top priority to prevent uh, escapes from going to seed. Uh, our colleague at Omafra, Kristen Obeid, is working with weed scientists at uh, AFC and the University of Guelph. And they're doing some awesome work with resistance testing and quick testing uh, that they're actually available free to growers right now. 
That's great. So uh, no excuse not to get your weeds tested for resistance. Yeah, definitely. You can't be can't beat free. So uh, what about organic carrot growers out there? Do they have similar tools available to them for managing weeds and carrots? Well, for organic carrots, you really have to rely on mechanical cultivation and hand weeding uh, for weed control. I think that we're also, you know, seeing some more conventional growers incorporating mechanical cultivation back into their strategies. Um, you know, there's not many weeds that are resistant to steel, so it's a great way to deal with those herbicide-resistant weed problems. Uh, one key part of organic carrot weed control that conventional growers can also use is a stale seabed technique. So with organic carrots, it's critical to do this in order to reduce the burden on cultivation uh, and hand weeding. Uh, sorry, and what's a stale seabed technique? Uh, so stale seabed is kind of when you make beds, um, you allow the weeds to germinate and you kill them off, you know, if you're organic, either by flaming them or cultivation, or if you're conventional, you can do it with a herbicide. Uh, but the general idea is basically you drain that top portion of the hills uh, of germinating weed seeds. So you, you basically drain the first flush or two of weeds out of that, that top layer of the seeds. So you can seed the crop beforehand and do it right before emergence. Um, or you can make the beds prior to and wait for those first flush or two to come up and then kill off the weeds. Okay. So you mentioned some growers are starting to adopt more mechanical cultivation, which is great to hear from a resistance management perspective. Um, but can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, definitely. Uh, growers, I think, had gotten away from it a little bit, uh, in, you know, cultivation because of, well, I would say like a number of reasons, you know, like uh, we talk about soil health or worried about more weeds germinating after you scuffle. Um, they may not have had a good setup that could uh, get good weed control without hurting the crop or, or having the hills erode, that kind of thing. Uh, but I would say there's definitely more, you know, scuffling and mechanical cultivation going on now than there has been. Um, there's also been some great work recently and research out of Michigan State University uh, Dan Brainerd's group has been doing some interesting work in carrots with mechanical weed control, and they have some pretty good resources available on, you know, different types of cultivation tools, knives, tines, hooks, you know, finger weeders, and different kinds of equipments that would work in carrots. So if you are interested in that, you can uh, check their work out. Any uh, work on robotic weeders in carrot fields? <laughs> uh, I would say we're, we'll probably will see a commercial, you know, robotic weeder in Ontario at some point, probably within the next decade or so. Uh, you know, there's already units out there with, you know, visual guidance systems, RTK, that kind of thing that are close to uh, robotic weeders, but like a true robotic weeder that's, you know, eliminating or picking out weeds in between the carrots and the crop. Uh, I was, It's not here yet, but it's coming. Uh, it would have a definite fit in carrots because there's a real reliance on hand weeding the crop. It's It's a huge expense. But growers, you know, can pay up to a couple thousand dollars per acre in labor costs on a weedy field. So, um, you know, it's a huge expense. It's getting more difficult to find workers willing to weed all day in the middle of July and August, you know, which is another limiting factor. And in Ontario, if you're growing carrots commercially, uh, you know, it's pretty difficult to grow a crop without having to hand weed at least once at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so is there anything else growers could try if they're dealing with some really high weed pressure and yeah, maybe they don't have the labor capacity to hand weed? Um, yeah, I think one thing I think could work, uh, really well for growers is, is building or, or buying a band sprayer or like a hooded sprayer. 
Um, I think most people might be familiar with the concept, but the, the general idea is you have a hooded sprayer in between the rows where you spray sort of like a non-selective herbicide and it's protected from getting on the crop. Okay, and do you see a lot of growers using these band sprayers? Uh, there are some out there for sure. I think mostly growers are building their own, but there's some nice units available, you know, out of the UK. And I think they're actually a great fit in carrots, especially for growers with resistance issues. Um, with band sprayers, if you do it right, you can really cut your focus in half and just worry about the top of the hill and sort of those in-row uh, weeds. Yeah, you know, with the hoods or the shrouds, you can get on a burn-down product like AIM, which is registered, and take care of anything in between the rows. And some growers also have a sort of second tank and nozzle setup where you can apply a different product, like a crop-tolerant herbicide, to the top of the carrots at the same time. So, you, you know, growers are using like carrot oil or Lorox or something like that, which can get those in-row weeds between the carrots at the same time. Sorry, what in the world is carrot oil? <laughs> <laughs> uh, carrot oil is a product uh, growers have historically used to clean up, you know, really weedy fields. Um, carrot, it's actually mineral spirits and it's, it's registered for use on a couple crops, including carrots, uh, as Garzman Agricultural Weed Killer number one. Um, you know, growers really only use it as a last resort. It's, it's very expensive. It's not really nice to work with. But, you know, there's been fields out there that look like they're growing weeds one day and the next day, you know, it's a carrot field again. So it seems to have taken on this kind of magical, you know, secretive persona that growers kind of only whisper about. <laughs> so interesting. Some cool trade secrets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess uh, not a not so well kept trade secret for sure. <laughs> Uh, so is there anything else that's uh, new and coming down the pipeline? Yeah, actually, there's been uh, there's been a few minor use priorities for carrot herbicides over the last few years. Um, ones that are currently in progress, I can think of Blazer uh, and Zidua, which is currently being worked on. So Blazer is a, a soybean herbicide, group 14, so much more of a contact herbicide. It can be pretty hot on the crop. Um, you can do... Um, some damage, but the rate that works in carrots is much lower than the soybean rate, uh, and it's very effective against pigweed. So it could be a nice addition to the toolbox when when that you know registration eventually comes through. Zidua is a Group 15 herbicide, kind of like Dual 2 Magnum, uh, same group that has excellent pre-emerge activity against pigweed. So Clarence Swanton has done some some great background work with this product uh, and really pushed to get it registered. So the use pattern would be a kind of applied early post emergence application, and it can really help with the resistant pigweed issues. Uh, the only problem is it looks at this point, it's only safe on muck soil. So unfortunately for mineral growers, that might not be an option. Uh, but we're also exploring a goal registration for use, kind of early post as well. And that would be specifically targeting resistant pigweed. Um, so we were going to go for that this year, but with the changes in the minor use system, you know, due to COVID and everything, this project might have to wait another year, but we'll have to see. Uh, we'll have to see how that goes. Right. Anything else you could see coming down the pipeline? Yeah, there's a couple other things I'm kind of excited about. Also, um, Belgium has an older kind of Group Six herbicide, so Group Six would be like Pardner and Bassagrand. Those products. Uh, so this product is called Pyridate. Uh, it's shown good crop tolerance on carrots in some early trials in the UK, and Clarence Swanton has looked at it with the University of Guelph. So. It's kind of it's a contact herbicide, but it could be a good rotational partner for Group 14 herbicides like Gold or Chateau, because there there's a potential for Group 14 resistant pigweed. Uh, so it'd be a good rotational partner for that. There's been some reports of Eptam being effective as a pre-plant incorporate uh, treatment on muck soil. So that's uh, that's one thing that's worth some follow up as well. 
Uh, and another project I'm working on with Chris and Obi this year is uh, a large-scale demonstration trial of different herbicide programs. So one of the main purposes will be to compare different combinations of Gessegard, Dual, and Prowl uh, as pre-emergence treatments. Uh, but we're also investigating Gessegard for use as a post-treatment. So it's labeled for use in the U.S. in some states as a post-application at the three and, uh, to five leaf stage. So we'd really like to see if that would be an effective use here in Ontario. Hopefully we'll learn some uh, interesting lessons we'll be able to share on the uh, on Vegetables blog. And you mentioned earlier how carrots are terrible competitors early in the season. Now, aside from using herbicides, is there maybe any way to make the carrots just more competitive to weeds? Yeah, that's another area I've been looking into recently. There's a, a plant growth hormone called gibberellic acid. Uh, one of the products is ProLiant, I think from New Farm. Uh, it's used in a number of different crops for various effects on the crops, but what gibberellic acid or GA does uh, in carrots is it stimulates the plant to increase the, the leaf or the top growth of the plant. Uh, so Jed Calcoon's group out of the uh, University of Madison, Wisconsin has done some work on this, and I trialed it in Ontario last year. Basically by using GA early on in the growth stages, kind of when you be applying your early herbicide applications, um, and kind of around the three to five leaf stage to see if we can increase kind of weed competitiveness. So we applied it twice, one week apart at uh, various rates, but we found it actually worked quite well uh, in getting sort of increased uh, top growth and out-competing the weeds. So one week after application, you know, the canopy was about an inch bigger. Two weeks after application, you know, the carrots treated with GA were, were like three inches taller than the untreated carrots. And those treatments also filled out the carrot canopy quicker. Uh, you know, the high rates, the carrot canopy was closed two weeks ahead of the untreated check and at the lower rates, one week ahead of the untreated check. So I think there might be a fit there, you know, to make the carrots more competitive and to fill in that, you know, in row space quicker so that you're really only worrying about weeds, you know, in between the rows. Right. Um, so integrated weed management might be a term people haven't heard before. Um, so that goes to say, what would be your ideal weed management strategy in carrots? <laughs> that's, uh, that's a tough question. Um, I think, well, each grower is going to have their own recipe that works for them on their different, uh, soil, soil types. But, um, there are some tips I would say, and kind of principles that might be helpful. Uh, I would say try and use a pre-emerge herbicide that buys you some time before the first flush of weeds, but at the same time kind of allows the carrots to germinate and get out of the ground quickly, you know, without slowing them down too much. You know, it might take some experimenting with products and rates in your soil, but it, it, I think it's worth the time to help the carrots get out of the ground quicker so they're not off, you know, to a slow start. I would consider using prime seed for, you know, even later seeded crops, the June seeded crops, when constantly germinating pigweed is a big problem. Uh, you know, prime seed might be worth the investment to get the carrots off to an earlier start. You know, mechanically scuffling to kill any small emerged weeds in between the rows and then, you know, come back over top with a band sprayer, for example. So and maybe put down a herbicide with some pre-emergent activity in between the rows you've just scuffled. So that would prevent against further emergence of uh, weed seeds. And then I would say, you know, any escapes later on the season, uh, definitely just send them in for testing. You know, it's free right now. It doesn't take long. And, and I think it's important to know how seriously you need to take those weed escapes this year. You know, if it turns out they are resistant, then you really need to get rid of them. Uh, hand weeding and remove them from a field or, you know, even wick weeding them. You know, just got to make sure that you get them out before they set seed because... 
And pigweed, for example, you know, one plant is going to leave like half a million seeds in your field. That's just one plant. So if you don't take care of them, get them before they seed, you know, those plants are going to be emerging and coming up a long time from now when, you're, when your kids are farming that land. So it's going to make for, uh, for more problems down the road. Oh, absolutely. Resistant and resilient. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like you said, these weeds are a problem in a lot of crops we deal with. And if they aren't managed properly, they'll be here to stay and just continue to cause more problems down the road. Yeah. So you provided a lot of great recommendations here for carrot growers. Um, you covered quite a lot, but is there anything else you wanted to add or maybe just provide some contact info in case any growers might have questions? Yeah, definitely. If you want to uh, follow up with any questions you may have, my email is Dennis, D-E-N-N-I-S dot Van Dyke, V-A-N-D-Y-K at Ontario.ca. And uh, you can give me a call as well, 519-766-5337. Be happy to chat. Great. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on the podcast today, Dennis. Uh, I really hope this will help out some of the carrot growers through Ontario just better understand the tools they have available to combat weed pressure. Thanks again for having me. I uh, really enjoyed it. Thanks, Dennis. I was just speaking with Dennis Van Dyke, vegetable crop specialist with the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs. Well, that brings us to the end of our second episode. This has been Christy Greg McGuffin and Cassie Russell for the What's Growing On podcast. For more information on horticulture grown in Ontario, check out the links to our fruit, vegetable, and specialty crop blogs in the show notes. And big thanks again to our three guests this week, Dennis Van Dyke, Hannah Frazier, and Erica Pate. And another big shout out goes to Michael Pupulin for editing our episodes. Music for this episode is the track Aspire by Scott Holmes. If you have questions, comments, or have a topic you would like us to cover, email us at onhortcrops at gmail.com. See you soon! <laughs>